Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Queering the Air, an hour of critically engaged queer commentary. I'm your host, Iris. Thanks to Encyclopedia for the previous hour of broadcasting. You're tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial, streaming live at 3cr.org.au, on digital radio and later on demand and podcasted. I'd like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nations, whose lands this show is produced on. Indigenous sovereignty was never ceded, and resistance led by First Nations people against genocide and colonisation is ongoing across so-called Australia. I'd also like to pay my respect to First Nations elders, past, present and future, and acknowledge any queer Indigenous folk tuning in. I'd like those of us like myself who are settlers on this stolen land to ask how we can address our complicity in this colonial violence in our everyday through solidarity and transformative politics. Um, I'm back. This is my first show in the time of the pandemic, and it's a bit of a time for me, to be honest. It's a moment where the state has further abandoned and criminalized communities already abandoned. There's a number of excellent fundraisers that I've shared via the Queering the Air Facebook page. Check out and support fundraisers for undocumented migrant solidarity on GoFundMe, COVID-19 Victorian First Nations Mutual Aid Fund on Chuffed, and Emergency Support Fund for Sex Workers in Australia by Scarlet Alliance, to name just a select few at the moment. Take care and look out for everyone, particularly those at the margins. Um, So for today's program, it's a bit of a packed one. Coming up, you'll hear interviews on sex work politics, the hares and hyenas raid, and the St Kilda Legal Service. But first up, I have an interview touching on a relational transformative politics that is the way through, with Mary Leeworthy, part of a queer mutual aid group. I'm joined on 3CR with Mary Leeworthy, who has been involved in COVID-19 Queer Aid NAM Melbourne. Could you introduce yourself a bit to listeners? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm Mary. Uh, I um, make music. I'm... Uh, studying uh, disability support uh, and generally chilling. Um, and I'm involved in this group, this new mutual aid group, Queer Aid. Awesome. So that's, I suppose, the main reason I have you on Queering the Air to talk about COVID-19 Queer Aid NAM Melbourne could you tell us a bit about the origins, the origins of the group, and what mutual aid means to you? Yeah, so my friend Kezia uh, made a post on Facebook, which was just putting it out there that maybe uh, it would be a good idea to create a group. Um, they're inspired by some projects that were going on in the UK. There's a group called Queer Care going on over there, and uh, I think some projects in Berlin as well. Um, that and the idea was to create kind of organized mutual aid system or group. And my friend Kezia made a post on Facebook uh, saying that they'd seen uh, some groups in the UK and in Berlin that were kind of like mutual aid groups that had popped up that were, uh, they were all about organizing, uh, providing care for people that are 
that are queer or um, just uh, coordinating volunteers to uh, help people out. And uh, their idea was to create a similar group in, in Nam where we could um, do, do the same thing, essentially, or do our version of it. And so, um, yeah, uh, after Kizia uh, kind of initiated things, we kind of, me and my partner, Asia, got on board, um, and some other people as well, uh, and started having some meetings, creating a Facebook group. Um, we had a bunch of people really um, quickly join the group and uh, start making posts. Um, so, but our goal was not to have it be focused on a Facebook group. Our goal was to uh, have something that was more coordinated. So um, what we ultimately wanted to do was have a big uh, list of volunteers, people signing up to volunteer, and then if someone needed something, they could make a request. So the, the idea would be that, um, you know, instead of just making a post and hoping someone sees it, people can make a request and then uh, we can assign that to a volunteer or someone near them who is um, uh, willing to help and uh, that will kind of be more systematic and kind of guarantee that uh, people get heard and therefore we don't have to rely on, you know, whether or not the algorithm shows up people's posts and whether or not people are even on Facebook in the first place. So. I guess we've got a few goals, but one of them was being a bit independent from that platform. Mm. Yeah, awesome. Um, can you tell us a bit about how mutual aid is different from charity? Yeah, for sure. So um, I, I guess charity, uh, at least as I understand it, is um, a kind of... Uh, I guess I think of it in terms of a power relation between people that uh, are systemically privileged and those that are systemically oppressed. And charity would be uh, a kind of organized um, delivery of goods and services uh, across that differential of power. Whereas mutual aid uh, at a philosophical level is conceptualized through the lens of solidarity. So rather than uh, rather than exploiting differences in power and in wealth that exist because of capitalism, because of uh, colonialism and patriarchy and all of the systems of power and oppression that exist in the world, uh, mutual aid is something that's led by community, led by uh, people who, um, for all intents and purposes, are the same as the people that they are trying to support. Mutual aid is kind of an extension of uh, uh, what we see spring up in communities, uh, particularly in response to crises, and as we've seen in um, certainly in response to when things started kicking off with coronavirus. Um, but mutual aid tries to take things a step further and uh, and provide care in, in a way that is organized and in, in a way that is acknowledging these um, power structures and actively seeking to uh, to overcome them. Mm, yeah, as a transformative element to mutual yeah. aid. Yeah. Um, could you talk generally with some examples of some of the needs that are coming through the group? Some of the, the needs that like, people have, yeah, requests or any yeah. themes you see? So, yeah. So we have people that are making posts in the group um, uh, and people post about all sorts of things. Um and as I mentioned earlier, our focus of the group was to, uh, and, and still is to try to um, receive requests through, through a, a form that we have. And so we've had a bit of a combination of those two. And um, 
in, in terms of what we're doing as a group uh, at the organized level is we're responding, I guess, like systematically to any requests that we get. So in terms of the requests, we've been having people saying that they're um, self-isolating uh, and not leaving the house because of um, maybe particular vulnerabilities that they have, um, pre-existing health conditions where uh, they are looking to completely minimize or eliminate any exposure to um, people in, in, in public where who, who might be vectors of the disease. So people that are in that situation are needing people to go shopping for them or run errands for them um, to... You know, some people need people to walk their dogs. Um, uh, other people are looking for mental health support, I guess, in the sense, not, not in the sense of uh, professional counseling, but just, uh, well, rather than mental health support, I, sh- I, sh- I should just say, um, I guess, someone to check in with them and, and someone to make contact and um, to help them out with the feelings of isolation that inevitably can come, especially if you're living alone and you have to suddenly um, stop all uh, social contact, at least in the, in the physical world. So um, people have been putting in requests for somebody to get in, get in contact with them. Um, some other things that have come up with people, uh, we suggested people might want to... Uh, have meals prepared. So a lot of volunteers have put their hands up to prepare, prepare meals. And so um, people have been doing that and then uh, dropping them off um, to help people who are, you know, I guess too burdened with other, um, uh, all of the other uh, things that are difficult about this pandemic um, or just to, yeah, support them with that. Um, and yeah, you know, some people, you know, have prescriptions and feeling, I guess, yeah, um, all sorts of things. And um, whatever people write in requesting help with, we um, try our best to find someone who can help them with that. Awesome. Um, on the way, what sort of challenges did you have you had to figure out or like work through? I see you collaborated on a volunteer handbook. Yep. So this was one of the first things we did when we set up the group was to focus on putting a handbook together. Um, and the idea of that was that, um, I guess, you know, we acknowledged that in trying to create an organized group, um, as opposed to more of a free-for-all Facebook group where people post and other people reply and comment, um, given that the structure that we were creating was more centralized, we felt that we had a responsibility to make sure that the, there was a certain standard of care being provided. Like when we ask a volunteer to um, help someone out, that that volunteer is not going to um, accidentally uh, act as a vector of disease, um, for example, through unsanitary practices, which could uh, easily happen. Anyone could be a vector um, without realizing it if they're gone. I'm doing shopping for people. Um, so this was the main purpose of this handbook was to try to provide a bit of a standard um, of safe practices, sanitary practices, so that we can minimize that risk for people, um, especially acknowledging that a lot of people making requests uh, are particularly vulnerable um, in that way. So that was one. And the other was just to kind of... Uh, Yes, give volunteers some suggestions of how to go about doing certain tasks. So, um, in case they're unsure or nervous or something, we kind of try to lay things out in, in, in as much a step by step way as possible, as well as creating kind of FAQs or uh, some links to uh, support resources and things like that. Um, that was one of the first things we did. And then 
in terms of other challenges we've faced, um, one of them which is kind of ongoing is that um, we have we're, we're wanting to I guess we're wanting to increase the reach of this um, group and we want people to be putting in more requests um, I guess um, you know acknowledging that uh, you know maybe uh, the virus has not um, peaked and escalated in the way that we were trying to prepare ourselves for um, and the curve of the transmission rate and things like that has, has been kind of slowed down and flattened. So um, we were really trying to get ready for things to become very intense um, and for a lot of people to need help. And um, uh, I think we've done that pretty well, but then uh, the challenge is in that we're continuing to work on is just increasing the reach of the work that we're doing and trying to um, get the word out, make sure that people know about this group and know that they're welcome to put in a request if they're uh, looking for some extra support. Okay, great. Uh, could you remind listeners again of how they could get involved or make a request? Totally. So um, we've set up a website now, which is uh, queeraidmelbourne.org. Uh, so if you go to, that, go to that website, then there'll be info there about our group, um, the link to our Facebook group. Um, but more importantly, there's links to the forms that you can fill out if you are wanting to request some support or if you want to sign up to volunteer. So uh, if you go to that website, queeraidmelbourne.org, then um, those are there. And there's also a bit of information about the group if you want to read about that or, or getting in contact with us uh, through our email and things like that. So that's what people should go through, <laughs> the website. Okay, great. Is there anything else you wanted to add? Um, just that uh, it's been really inspiring how many people have been putting their hand up to volunteer and um, that our group is just one of uh, many other projects that have sprung up in uh, response to this time. And I think um, it's a really, uh, in, a, in a really scary time, it's, it's been really um, hardening to see uh, so many people who are willing to um, uh, step up and not leave community behind, not leave vulnerable people behind, um, try their best to um, uh, strengthen our communities through supporting each other. Yeah, for sure. The kind of thing that we need to do through the crisis and through, I don't know if there'll ever be like a, when this is over, but the ongoing, whatever happens next. Yeah. And oh, that's maybe one thing, one more thing I would like to say is that um, uh, we, although this group is created in response to the crisis, we don't want it to stop when the crisis is over because um, this is what, you know, as I was talking about mutual aid before, um, it's not just about uh, helping people survive through the crisis, it's about continuing to um, strengthen community uh, in the face of the ongoing violence and oppression that is uh, structuring our world um, and our material realities. So um, mutual aid is not, uh, we don't want it to be a kind of momentary trend, but rather an ongoing structure that we can use to um, support each other in the future. Indeed. Thanks so much for joining me, Mary, on 3CR Querying the Air. No worries. Thank you for having me. And that was Mary Leeworthy, part of COVID-19 Queer Aid Now Melbourne. For the rest of the show, you'll be hearing some excellent content produced by other programs on 3CR Community Radio. Next, we have James McKenzie of 3CR's longest-running queer show, In Your Face, airing every four to five Friday, talking to Peaches from the Vixen Collective about issues for sex workers during COVID-19 and the sex work inquiry in Victoria. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, 855am. Well, Peaches is the acting spokesperson for sex workers' peer support organisation, the Vixen Collective, and I spoke with her this week. 
Of course, like it's very exciting that the government um, has announced their economic response to COVID. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, um, a lot of sex workers um, will be left without any financial support. Um, so one of the big um, the big issues is that sex workers often uh, don't want to identify themselves as sex workers to the government. Um, so there's that need for, for privacy to protect themselves from potential discrimination. Um, and that can make it really difficult to sort of account for um, prior earnings and that sort of thing that the government, the, the kind of information that the government wants to see um, for the job keeper and job seeker applications. And, you know, then you also have issues of people who perhaps don't have a permanent address, uh, people who don't have uh, photo ID, and, of course, migrant workers. Um, and, you know, we've seen across all industries that migrant workers um, have been unable to access any government support. Um, and so we're seeing a lot of people slipping through the cracks um, who have been um, unable to get any money from the government. Um, and, uh, you know, we've been pushing pretty hard uh, to get uh, to ease the restrictions around um, these sorts of supports. But, yeah, so what we've, what we've come up with is we've been coordinating uh, nationally with Scarlet Alliance and um, other Australian peer orgs, um, and they've put together the Chuffed Fundraiser, um, which is emergency relief for sex workers who um are ineligible for the uh, government um, for the government funding. Uh, so I think it's raised forty thousand dollars so far, which is fantastic. Um, and each week that money is allocated to um, to sex workers in need. Um, so we really need to keep to keep topping that up. So definitely um, encourage any members of the public who want to help out sex workers at this time um, to jump over to the Chuffed website um, and to contribute to that fund. It sounds like sex workers are going through enormous hardship and, as you said, falling through the cracks in the system. That must have incredible mental health and physical health and, and social impacts on them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of issues with homelessness um, and housing instability, um, inability to just meet basic needs like buying food and medicine and that sort of thing. Um, and, yeah, of course, uh, it can be incredibly stressful. Uh, the social distancing and quarantine um, is is taking a toll on, on people's mental health, absolutely. So um, I think it's more, you know, it's really important for everyone to to come together as a community to support each other. Um, I think both financially, you know, as I mentioned with the the Chuffed fundraiser, um, but also yeah, just um, keeping up with the Skype chats and or the Zoom chats as it is now. So yeah. Peaches, what are some of the issues sex workers are raising in peer support during the pandemic? Um, I think yeah, definitely the um, the struggle to access um, government funding is absolutely one of the big issues at the moment. Um, and of course, um, I think there's a lot of anxiety around housing, um, how to communicate with, um, you know, with property managers and all of that sort of thing. Um, and uh, clarity around, I think there's a lot of, um, a lot of people in community are really unsure what this uh, so-called moratorium on evictions actually entails. Um, and that's, yeah, that's creating a lot of anxiety for people. And, and yeah, also I suppose just a lack of, a lack of clarity around uh, what, um, you know, what people are and aren't allowed to do as well. And I guess this really highlights the need for government funding of peer organisations like the Vixen Collective, which receives no government funding, despite the enormous amount of peer support that it's offering, uh, this epidemic, this pandemic, just highlights the need for the government to step up and provide that peer support funding because you people can't be expected to do it, you know, for nothing when, when you know, you're struggling to survive as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we do run entirely on on um, volunteers and a lot of the support that we provide, you know, we have fundraisers and things in community and, um, you know, and a lot of people are, are very generously do um, contribute to covering some of the basic costs of the organisation. So, you know, even things like just getting phone credit to keep the peer support phone running 
And, uh, you know, that's much appreciated. But absolutely, I think it is time. Um, Victoria is the is still the only state with an unfunded um, peer sex worker organisation. And it's absolutely time that, um, that, that we got some funding so that we can do uh, do more for our community and, and give people the support that they need and deserve. Of course, Vixen Collective does have an office at Trades Hall. I imagine you're not able to access that office at the moment. Well, we we do have access to the office, but uh, no, we have it. We have been working from home, and yeah, respecting the the social distancing. Um, but yeah, it was very unfortunate that we sort of we finally got ourselves an office um, that yeah, Trades Hall were um, generous enough to help us out with, and yeah, we've back to working at home so <laughs> but hopefully hopefully the well we'll see maybe the restrictions will ease or yeah and then we can uh, start to make use of the space of course last year the victorian government announced an inquiry into sex work with the view of uh perhaps full decriminalization occurring in this state uh where's that at yeah, so of course, um, you know, coronavirus has um, has slowed everything down a bit, um, and I think a lot of our attention has gone towards that. Um, but it is still chugging along. Um, so we do, you know, we do have some concerns about the review. Um, I think as we've uh, as we've spoken about before. Um, the terms of reference for the review um, have still not been updated um, and, and there are some elements of that that um, I think um, sort of misrepresent where um, the sex worker community is at. Um, so things like uh, the New, New Zealand scheme, um, uh, the New Zealand model is largely preferred by decrim advocates. And I'm, I'm not sure which decrim advocates exactly they're referring to because it's certainly not Vixen Collective. And it's it's definitely not in line with um, the will of community. It's very much our opinion that um, that uh, we want the full decriminalize full decriminalization of all forms of sex work. And the New Zealand model, of course, still criminalizes migrant work. So to, for us, it's very important that um, we all walk over the line together, and that we don't leave marginalised workers behind. You know, and I think that there, we are feeling um, a bit of a lack of consultation with the with Vixen Collective as the peer org at the moment. Um, and I think it's important that we really push the government to centre sex worker voices um, in in the review. Um, obviously, we are the primary stakeholders in this and um, and any review that doesn't centre uh, the needs and experiences of current sex workers, um, I, I, I do worry um, will not give us uh, the sort of results that we are looking for. It's disappointing those terms of reference haven't been revised considering the inquiries largely, from what I can tell, being run out of uh, Fiona Patton's office, an upper house MP, who has uh, strong links to the Eros Foundation. That's disappointing about the terms. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and we do hope that, um, you know, Fiona will update those terms of reference. Um, and we're certainly, certainly pushing hard for those to be changed. Finally, Peaches, is there anything else that you would like to add about sex workers issues at the moment? Well, I suppose I'd just like to say that if there are any sex workers out there who do want to become, in, who do want to get involved in, um, in the review is to please absolutely get in touch with us. Um, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and also, um, yeah, if, uh, if people want to be sure to please contribute to the, the Chuffed fundraiser, it's the best way that you can support sex workers uh, who don't have access to government benefits at the moment. And that was Peaches from Sex Worker Peer Support Organisation, the Vixen Collective. James McKenzie there, talking to Peaches from Vixen Collective. Definitely get on that fundraiser, that Chuffed fundraiser for sex workers. You can find it on Scarlet Alliance social media and i've also shared it on the querying the air facebook page next up we hear from max castle of 3cr thursday breakfast who talked to jeremy kings about the ibac findings into the police raid on the hairs and hyenas bookshop as well as that they'll be talking about covidpolicing.org.au a website launched to track policing during the covid19 pandemic i'll give a content warning for police violence for the next bit of this show you're listening to 3CR Community Radio, Querying the Air. 
We're now joined by Jeremy King to discuss the recently released findings of IBAC's investigation into the police raid on the iconic LGBT bookstore Hares and Hyenas last year. Jeremy is Principal Lawyer at Robinson Gill Lawyers. Thanks so much for joining us, Jeremy. No worries, Max. So firstly, could you just give us a bit of background? What happened on the night of 11th of May 2019 at the Hares and Hyenas bookstore? Yeah, so what, I mean, what happened um, from the point of view of um, Nick and Crusader and Roland uh, is they, um, uh, Nick and Roland were sleeping upstairs and Crusader was sleeping downstairs at the Hares and Hyenas bookshop, which is on Johnson Street in Fitzroy, um, somewhere towards after 10 or 11 at night. Um, uh, Nick uh, saw some lights and heard some intruders. Um, they then came into the um, uh, property uh, Nick has always been very consistent that they didn't announce themselves. Uh, he had been very worried of it being a, um, a home invasion. And I think it's got to be sort of noted that, um, you know, a home invasion for some people might seem a bit out there, but obviously uh, these guys had been very worried about that for a long time because because Hares and Hyenas is such a landmark for the LGBTIQ community uh, that, that that was a concern that it would be a target of a of a hate crime. So just, that just sort of needs to be put in context that this is not, not an unreasonable thing for him to be thinking. Um, so he then tried to um, run down the stairs and out the door. Uh, the police then caught up with him um, and then have taken him to ground outside the shop on Johnson Street and then while doing that have um, uh, severely injured his uh, shoulder. Uh, at no time um, was Nick ever told that he was under arrest. At no time was Nick ever told why he was under arrest. And at no time was Nick ever told that he had ceased to be under arrest. Um, uh, and at the conclusion of that, he, an ambulance is called and he is then taken to uh, St Vincent's Hospital uh, where he undergoes um, urgent surgery to try and repair his shoulder. Um, I mean, just by way of background, he's had uh, a further... Um, shoulder surgery uh, since that time, pretty major operation, uh, and has been undergoing um, significant rehab in respect to that shoulder uh, over the last sort of 12 months. Mm. And so the Independent Broad-Based Anti-Corruption Commission, known as IBAC, recently released their findings um, of the investigation they were undertaking into the police conduct during the raid. What did they find? Uh, Well, what they found was... um, that they couldn't make a positive finding as to whether police did or did not announce themselves. Uh, and that is sort of interesting in of itself because you would have thought um, in this day and age uh, that given the technology that police have, that there would be some sort of objective evidence that they had announced themselves. So IBEC said, look, they can't decide that one way or the other. Um, uh, they then uh, found, um, unbelievably, that the arrest was lawful uh, and they then found... Um, just extraordinarily that the um, force used uh, was proportionate. Um, but then in a contradictory finding, um, which I can explain in a second, uh, they did also find that Nick's human rights had been breached. Um, and the reason why they found that was because there's a specific section of the Human Rights Charter in Victoria that says um, that you've got to be told that you're under arrest and you've got to be told why you're under arrest. And they found that police had not done that. Uh, and as such, they found that um, Nick's uh, human rights had been breached as a result. And, yeah, can you... So, for anyone who cares to read the um, the findings, it is pretty confusing stuff, as you've sort of highlighted. You know, how is it possible that IBAC has found that the arrest was lawful while similarly saying that, you know, the police breached um, Nick's human rights? How can that... And similarly, how can they say that, you know, there was no use of disproportionate force when we know that his shoulder was literally ripped out of its socket? Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. Uh, so, you know, I mean, I, I just think, um, and, you know, uh, legally speaking, um, it's also, in my view, just wrong at law uh, mm. because for an arrest, for any arrest to be lawful, just put the charter aside for a second, um, uh, it's long held that uh, in the criminal law that you have to tell the person um, uh, that they're under arrest and you have to say why they're under arrest. Now, there are some exceptions to that. So, for example, if someone's robbing a bank, well, yeah, okay, you probably don't have to tell them they're under arrest in that sort of circumstance if they're being caught red-handed. But that's not the situation here. Um, he, he's an innocent person um, sleeping in his own bed um, who has, you know, uh, understandably tried to flee what he thinks is a home invasion. So it's a, it's a completely different scenario. Police had 
many, many opportunities to tell him that he was under arrest and to tell him why he's under arrest. So there's this massive legal contradiction, we would say, in the findings between, on the one hand, finding the arrest is lawful and on the other hand, finding that they didn't tell him he was under arrest. And um, I, I think that's pretty hugely concerning um, for the community as a whole that IBAC would take that approach in respect to arrest. But probably what's even more concerning, I would say, uh, both for the community and um, from a legal point of view, is as you have quite rightly pointed out, how can it be proportionate forced ever to rip someone's um, shoulder, uh, you know, arm from their shoulder socket? And, you know, when you look at the scans here, the damage is unbelievable. When you look at what the trauma surgeon who operated on was saying, you know, 10 out of 10 damage, um, uh, and I think for them to say that it was proportionate um, and that's okay sets a pretty dangerous benchmark for what police consider to be reasonable force. Mm. And, you know, the findings are obviously incredibly disappointing, but given the, given the outcomes we've seen from past IBAC investigations, would you say that, like, or did you find the findings that surprising? I always keep my expectations very low when it comes to any police complaints bodies. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I was sort of stealing myself and I've been sort of saying to Nick and Roland and Chris Ada, look, you know, I'm, I'm not expecting a lot here. I think probably the thing I found most surprising is, um, I mean, obviously I would vigorously disagree, but if, you know, for example, we were talking before about how they said they couldn't make a positive finding about whether the police did or didn't announce themselves. Um, you know, I can sort of cop that sometimes from a uh, police complaints body because, you know, I mean, they're not a court, to be fair. They do have all of the evidence and sometimes it's competing evidence. Um, and sometimes it is hard for them to come to a conclusion. So to a certain extent, whilst I don't agree with it, um, you know, a neutral assessment of it, uh, you know, would have been better. And that's what I'd been stealing myself for was to say that they'll, they'll make a neutral finding here just to say, look, um, it's very difficult for us to work this out. But to make a positive finding that it is proportionate forced, I think is just disgraceful, to be honest. And, you know, some people might try and argue that this is the the exception to the rule. Could you talk about the importance of seeing the raid on the Hares and Hyenas bookstore and the outcome of the IBAC investigation in the context of everyday and ongoing racialised and violent policing and, you know, incre- the increased militarisation of policing in Victoria? Yeah, I mean, I think you, you do have to look at it in, in a wider context. I mean, IBAC doesn't look at that many cases, Max. It only mm. looks at a very select few, and it only comments publicly on a very, very select few. Yeah. So um, this was its opportunity, in my view, to really say this is not okay um, and that, you know, um, IBAC is here. We're going to objectively and impartially look at all of this stuff, but really we're going to... Um, you know, use the powers and resources we have to address, um, uh, you know, what I would say is police misconduct uh, in respect to this issue. And, you know, as I say, send a message really to say that, yeah, we're here, we have teeth um, and we're not kind of going to put up with it. And I think um, that opportunity um, by IBAC has really been, um, uh, really been missed. And I think, uh, that is really, um, uh, you know, that, 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 as I say, that's very sad. I've actually only take a very tiny, minuscule proportion of cases, like something like less than, I don't know, 5% or might even less than that of cases that are referred to them. Um, and if they're sort of not even willing to take on this, it, 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 is, it is pretty concerning for the community to say, well, how can the community really have faith that if they refer a complaint to IBAC, one, they're even going to take it, and two, that if, if this is their benchmark, you know, um, uh, how the hell can they have confidence that their complaint is going to be dealt with? Mm. And, you know, the fight is far from over. Um, what are the next steps? Yeah, so um, the next steps are that we have written to the Director of Public Prosecutions mm-hmm. um, and asked the DPP to um, uh, look at uh, potential criminal charges against the officers involved in this case. Uh, and I suppose... Um, uh, we've also uh, certainly looking at what are our options in respect to the IBAC decision itself because it is so legally contradictory uh, and uh, having a review of that. And then also there's going to be um, civil litigation uh, against Victoria Police uh, in respect of this incident as well. Mm. Because obviously it's one thing for, you know, um, a uh, complaint body to uh, make these findings, but it's another thing when, when you know, um, uh, you've got a legal team surrounding you and we're, you know, um, forcefully 
uh, and vigorously putting your case um, in front of a court. So uh, it'll be a very different kettle of fish and, in my view, um, likely a very different outcome. Um, and also just wondering, you know, how have Nick Rowland and Crusader responded to the findings as well as the, the LGBTIQ community more broadly? And, and I guess also how can, how could listeners support, you know, Nick Rowland and Crusader at this time? Yeah, um, I, I think that, uh, they have, uh, reacted to it, um, as ever with, you know, humanity and real grace and, um, you know, they're, they're amazing in terms of the way that they dealt with it, to be honest. You know, if that was me, I'd probably, crawl into a ball and go into a corner but these guys you know they just get on with it they deal with it they're you know obviously shocked in disbelief and horrified by it but um they still they still get on with it and see the bigger picture um and that's you know pretty incredible not that doesn't it doesn't happen every day of the week um in terms of supporting them um you know obviously there's been a huge outpouring in social media of support for them that's been fantastic and i think you know, um, uh, if you can go online and, and buy a book from Hairs and Hyenas Bookshop, um, that's also a fantastic way uh, of uh, supporting them at this time as well because obviously um, the bookshop is, is shut at the moment uh, because of COVID-19 issues and uh, if you really want to support them, as I say, jump onto the Hairs and Hyenas uh, website and um, and buy a book. Yeah, awesome. And just briefly before we wrap up, um, I'd love to talk briefly about a new website that's just launched in relation to mis- police misconduct during yeah. the COVID-19 pandemic called covidpolicing.org.au. Are you yeah. able to speak to, you know, why this website was created and what it's aiming to do? Uh, I mean, I can in that um, I can certainly give you a comment on it. Um, yeah, that'd be great. Uh, I, I'm probably into I can't really, yeah, I mean, obviously someone like Anthony Kelly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah. Yeah, I'll try and chat to Anth next week. But if you could just even just a brief comment to include at the end of interview to let people know about it would be rad. Yeah, so I mean, I suppose right now um, uh, policing in in across the, the nation, but you know also in Victoria, um, is it is a bit tricky at the moment because the law regarding what you can and can't do is very murky. It's very grey. Um, there have been numerous instances of police taking. Um, what I would say is an overly heavy-handed approach um, in respect to um, policing. Um, and if you look at the statistics, um, there appears to be a pattern emerging that obviously people in um, lower socioeconomic um, areas uh, are being uh, more greatly impacted by this and also people who are vulnerable and disadvantaged um, who might be homeless or uh, things like that are going to be um, greatly disadvantaged by uh, these laws and by police's uh, enforcement of them. Um, and because they are very significant powers that police have, uh, it's critical that they're monitored. It's critical that uh, if there is misconduct or if they do step out of line, that they're held to account for it. Um, and uh, that's why this website um, uh, has been created by uh, a whole bunch of people, including the Police Accountability Project. Uh, I think Amnesty International has been involved in it and I think the Grata Fund has been involved in it. And, you know, it is a fantastic website, I would say, to um, anyone in the community, um, anyone in the legal profession, if a client comes to see you or if you have an interaction with police um, during these times that, as I say, um, uh, is not appropriate or there is an element um, where they have overstepped the mark, then you should be jumping on this website and you should be uh, reporting it straight away because uh, if you don't, um, then we can't collect this data together, we can't put the picture together and we can't advocate um, to make sure that, um, you know, uh, these laws are carefully monitored and try to keep police in check in respect to these laws. Mm. Absolutely. Um, and, yeah, before we wrap up, is there anything that we haven't had a chance to touch on that you wanted to add? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you did ask a question about kind of the wider, how it fits into the wider scheme, and I probably didn't mm. answer that as well as I could have. Um, I mean, the only thing I would say is that, you know, you can't view this in isolation because you should be also looking at obviously the inflation nightclub raid. Mm. Um, and, uh, obviously the same team involved in hands on hyenas was involved in the inflation nightclub raid. Um, and that's the critical incident response team. Um, and there was another incident in Brunswick on Sydney road also involving the critical incident response team, um, uh, where they broke a man's jaw and clearly there seemed to be some problems with the critical incident response team. Um, and use of excessive force. Uh, and, you know, obviously one of the findings that the IBAC decision did make was 
to say that they were writing to the Chief Commissioner about failings by cert in these cases regarding um, their policies and procedures and not according with them and not, you know, keeping in line with them. And I do think um, that is a concern of, of the, the communities you have, that there are this, there, there is this team, unfortunately, um, that does seem to be uh, repeat offenders in regards to these issues. Um, and, you know, I mean, Arbac has written to the Chief Commissioner, but in my view, a better message to be sending would have been to say that the force was excessive and that the arrest was unlawful. You heard from Max Castle there interviewing Jeremy King. And in listening to that interview, I think it's also worth reflecting too on the recent news about the Justice for Tanya Day campaign, which has been covered on many 3CR programs. Uh, in particular, check out the Doing Times show from 4 to 5 p.m. Mondays. Um, and a reminder about that campaign, it was a campaign for justice and it's still ongoing campaign for justice for Yorta Yorta woman Tanya Day who died in police custody in late 2018 after being arrested for public drunkenness. And the coroner just in, the rec- in recent weeks handed down her findings, which were mixed, but they did refer police to the Department of Public Prosecutions for potential criminal negligence. Um, so yeah, shout out to the staunch advocacy of the Tanya Day family for getting that referral and also the promise of the Daniel Andrews government to decriminalise public drunkenness. Um, and in mentioning that, in my opinion, we can't get a, get towards ending police violence without centering the violence experienced by black and indigenous folks on this continent and their campaigns for justice. Next up, we hear from Max Castle of Thursday Breakfast again, chatting with Sam Elkin about a queer legal needs survey. Now I'm joined by Sam Elkin to talk with us about the LGBTIQ Legal Needs Survey. Thanks so much for joining us on the show, Sam. Thanks for having me, Max. Good to be here. So to jump right in, what is this LGBTIQ Legal Needs Survey that you've been involved with? Yeah, so um, the LGBTIQ Legal Service has been running a pilot project for the last two years now to address um, the unmet legal needs of the Victorian LGBTIQ community. And um, we've been pretty like open in terms of what we would help people with because we don't really know what it is. Um, we didn't have a sort of firm agenda when we, when we started the project. And um, one of the things that we wanted to do at the end of the project, we're coming to the end now, is write a comprehensive report Report on what the both met and unmet legal needs of the LGBTIQ community are. So that could be things like, uh, you know, help with fines, infringements, tenancies, um, criminal charges. Could be things like, um, you know, parenting arrangements and parenting disputes, stuff like that. Um, and we would just really want the community to respond to this survey to let us know um, what legal needs they've had in the past, um, whether or not they were addressed respectfully by a lawyer if they had one, um, whether they had a good experience or a bad experience in court if they went to court, and um, proactively asking for ideas on what we can do to make um, you know, the, the justice system in Victoria better for LGBTIQ people. And... Just to sort of, I guess, like look back at some of the, the work you've been doing over the past few years, you know, you've had a huge amount on your plate um, doing the LGBTIQ legal service. What are some of the actual, I guess, like the legal needs on the ground that you've been seeing in doing that work? Yeah, so um, the way that we structured our project was um, we've been doing a health justice partnership with Thorn Harbour Health, which used to be known as the Victorian AIDS Council. So we've been paired with the um, the AOD team, the alcohol and other drugs team. So we've had heaps of referrals from the, them after the la, over the last two years and also from the um, Thorn Harbour Health family violence team and their general counselling team. So we've had, um, unsurprisingly, we've had a big um, response for people needing help with criminal charges relating to um, drug possession. Um, so we've had some tenancy issues relating to allegations of drug use at the property things like that. So there's the kind of issues that have been coming out of the AOD team. Um, family violence, unsurprisingly, um, family violence um, related support is the primary need for assistance there. So that's both um, affected family members, so people that are um, seeking intervention orders and also people that are respondents in intervention order matters. And there's often criminal charges um, that stem from um, family violence incidences. So we've had um, 
requests for support around that as well. Um, but more broadly, we've had heaps of requests for support around discrimination, um, particularly the trans and gender diverse community and um, gay or same-sex attracted men or men who have sex as men in country regional areas in their employment. So they're yeah, some of the big themes that we've had um, in the service. Um, but yeah, we continue to explore ways that we can connect with different parts of the community and we don't necessarily think that we've assisted everybody um, because we're a small team and that's why we want to do a survey to, to kind of reach out to people that we may not have spoken with, we may not have helped. We don't want to skew the, the report um, to show that, you know, every LGBTIQ person needs help with drug-related offences mm. uh, when that may not be the case. We may just have not reached an entire segment of the community that has unmet legal needs. And yeah, as you're sort of saying, like obviously one of those, those limitations is based off, um, you know, the, the various referral pathways you've had, but also I guess the huge barriers that LGBTIQ people face um, in terms of, you know, either identifying things as legal issues or like reaching out um, and getting support that is, uh, you know, safe and appropriate and what they need. Could you speak a little bit about, um, yeah, some of those barriers that queer and trans folks, for example, face um, in accessing legal support? Yeah, well, I guess there's kind of two broad kinds of legal problems that you might have, one of which is kind of like a reactive issue. So say, for example, you've got um, criminal charges and then you you know, are looking for a lawyer or some sort of support to help you in court. I think um, people like that, the kind of issues that they have in terms of barriers is the fact that there isn't enough legal support for everybody. Um, so Victoria Legal Aid's guidelines for legal support are really, really strict. Um, basically, if you're not, if there isn't a strong likelihood that you're going to be incarcerated, um, you're probably not going to get ongoing assistance um, from an organisation like Victoria Legal Aid. You might get duty lawyer assistance on the day, but that person may or may not have been trained in LGBTIQ inclusive practice. They may, um, you know, uh, intentionally or unintentionally um, discriminate against people and certainly the experience that um, clients have had in the court and, um, you know, dealing with correction staff and things like that has really been a mixed bag. Um, there isn't a standard level of inclusive practice within the courts and broader justice system at the moment. So there's some of the kind of barriers that people might experience if they've been charged or if they're respondent in a family violence order, for example. But then there's a whole bunch of kind of um, legal issues that, that you might need to take a positive step to enforce your legal rights. So say, for example, if you've been sacked um, for being uh, bisexual or for being in a poly relationship or something like that, um, you know, you then need to take the proactive step of either lodging at the Fair Work Commission or lodging a discrimination complaint. And the whole model at the moment is an individual complaints-based system. It requires, you know, somebody like an LGBTIQ person to identify that they've been wronged in some way, to identify a legal service like ours that might be able to help them and to go through the, you know, emotional drama of engaging in litigation against a powerful organisation that has, you know, wronged you and hurt you, mm. um, particularly if you've lost your job. I mean, that's 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 a big call. So there's a lot of barriers there um, in terms of, you know, the ability to pay for people to access free and, you know, appropriate legal services in a timely fashion, and then the kind of systemic issues that the issue is pushed back upon the individual to sort out. It's not like there's a work safe type thing that can swoop in and assist somebody. It's an individual complaints based model. Um, you're meant to, you know, take your, have your day in court, I suppose. So there's a lot of different issues in, involved in that. And what do you think are some of the, I guess, the pros and cons of, of, you know, having and expanding an LGBTIQ specific legal service versus, you know, you, you mentioned, um, LGBTIQ inclusive training for, you know, for generalist community legal centres, I guess. Um, yeah, what are your sort of thoughts on that? Yeah, this is something that's come up heaps in um, like trans and gender diverse communities in healthcare as well recently. So it's a conversation that's being had in a lot of different areas of life. Um, I think that we want specialist services and we want mainstream services as well to not discriminate and to be able to provide a basic level of 
um, professional services to everybody. That's what we want. And I think that you have a specialist service there like the LGBTIQ legal service to model best practice and to um, provide training to other organisations and to run, um, you know, strategic litigation around areas in which LGBTIQ people are routinely experiencing discrimination, for example, um, wherever that might be. But you, you know, it's completely unrealistic for, you know, two or three lawyers to help every LGBTIQ people that need, need support in Victoria. Like we need the mainstream services, both the legal assistance sector like legal aid and also private lawyers as well to build their capacity to, you know, not misgender people when they come for legal support, um, not bring really harmful um, stereotypes about, you know, poly or open relationships when they're taking a legal history from somebody that makes somebody not want to go back and, you know, divulge really personal information. We need both to happen and that's why I think you need a specialist service there to, to model and, and be the advocate for it for the mainstream. And has the LGBTIQ legal service been supporting queer and trans folks who are criminalised and imprisoned? And if so, you know, what sort of support have you been providing or what gaps do you see in terms of legal need there? Yeah, so we have kind of quietly launched this project um, in the last year called the Roberta Perkins Law Project, which is designed to focus specifically on the needs of the trans and gender diverse community throughout Victoria. And... Um, when we set that up, I was imagining that we would be helping people with, you know, Centrelink appeals and tenancy issues and stuff like that. And we've been doing a bit of that. But to be honest, the overwhelming legal need that we've identified is within the prison population. So um, many people who are trans and gender diverse who are incarcerated at the moment, either on the remand or have been sentenced at the moment, are you know, routinely experiencing all kinds of structural um, issues, you know, including sexual harassment and discrimination, um, not being placed in the, you know, correct prison for the gender to which they identify, not being able to access timely and, you know, sensitive um, medical support around hormone replacement therapy, for example, um, and, you know, a high level of, I suppose, uh, trauma in, in being incarcerated in, um, you know, a, a men's prison if they're a trans woman, for example. Um, so there's a lot of work to do in that space. I think that we need a lot of change in that area and we're very keen to keep working with trans and gender diverse prisoners or people that are um, at risk of becoming incarcerated. And, um, yeah, we continue to reach out to um, people through the through the Victorian prisons Broadly speaking, what are, I guess, what are your yeah, hopes and dreams for the LGBTIQ legal service in the future? Well, <laughs> we'd like to continue to exist. Um, that would be, <laughs> we've got a very humble dream, which is continued <laughs> existence. Um, you know, like I'm sure many of the listeners will intimately understand, like working in not-for-profit, there's just constant funding dramas around getting your project initially funded and then refunded. So we're just going through a lot of that stuff at the moment um, but we think we're going to get there and I suppose what we would like to see is an ongoing stable and funded service and expanding the partnerships that we already have so we've got a partnership with Transgender Victoria which is great we've got a partnership with Thorn Harbour Health which is great we'd like to do more work with um, the a trans and gender diverse sex worker community. So we're going to work on the um, law reform decriminalisation submission with sex workers later in the year, which we're really looking forward to and think is really important. And um, we just can want to do more better, basically. We want to have more of a um, presence in regional communities in Victoria. Um, so we'd like to get out to Bendigo. I know um, Thorn Harbour Health in Bendigo have a small office up there so we want to get out there and do some community outreach at some point and we just kind of want to do I suppose you know timely and effective strategic litigation as well so we want to you know run test cases. And that was Max Castle of Thursday Breakfast chatting with Sam Elkin from the St Kilda Legal Service about a queer legal needs survey and their practice there. Um and that's about the end of our show today, unfortunately. You can find the rest of that interview on Thursday Breakfast at 3cr.org.au. 3CR 
And yes, it's a thing now from May 1st that trans and gender diverse people with birth certificates in Victoria can now change the sex marker on their birth certificates. The cost though is around $120, so I for one have bigger priorities during these times. If any listeners have feedback or suggestions, you can message us at Queering the Air on Facebook or Twitter. Also, give us a like or follow. If not over social media, shoot out media, shoot us an email at queeringthear at gmail.com. You can listen to Queering the Air every Sunday from 3 to 4 p.m. Check out our podcast at 3cr.org.au forward slash queeringthear. Stay tuned to 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your AM dial. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.